0: But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying to himself, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself character in the early church, a guy called Stephen, um, was killed. He was a guy, don't forget, who was so empowered with the spirit that we saw. uh, He powerfully advanced the gospel. He faced up to opposition boldly. And even in his death, his life and his death, he beautifully modeled Jesus Christ. This guy, Stephen, was a a spirit-filled leader of the early church. And on the day that he was killed uh, by the mob, It says that a great persecution broke out, so much so that the disciples, the believers in the early church in Jerusalem, um, were dispersed all over the place. But the thing uh, that we need to really hold in our minds this morning as we go through this text is this. The gospel always advances. The church is always growing. The fame of Jesus is always spreading. And not even the death of some of its most gifted leaders will stop the advance of the gospel. And and maybe um, you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you need to receive the confidence, the reminder once again, that it's Jesus who's building his church. I will build my church. And it's not us, actually. And that's so reassuring. It's not us at Foundation Church. We're obeying. We're being faithful. But it's Jesus that is building his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. They won't hold it back. So we bring that into our mind when we see this other release, if you like, of the the activity of the Spirit, the advancing of the Gospel in this amazing story that we've just covered um, in these these verses. And the two things I want to try and and get into our minds today um, as we assess this text is this. Number one, you've heard it before, the Gospel-centred, Spirit-empowered, community-on-mission, number one, is radically inclusive. Radically inclusive. And number two, the Gospel-centred, Spirit-empowered, community-on-mission is necessarily exclusive. So it's radically inclusive, necessarily exclusive. Let's take the first one, try and understand it. There is revival breaking out in this area called Samaria. Verses five through eight, we see a glimpse of what's been happening. We see this amazing advance of the gospel. These people in this region of Samaria are so open They're so quick to receive the good news. It is almost like a dream situation that any preacher or or, or missionary of the gospel of Jesus would dream about. A group of people that just suddenly open up to the gospel. And it says there with one accord, that is with one mind, you know, together, they paid attention to Philip. Now, don't forget, Philip uh, was one of the uh, seven that were chosen by the early church initially to... Uh, served tables to make sure that the widows were well looked after within the early church. Seven men were selected who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and Philip is one of those seven. Stephen was one of those seven, he's now dead, Philip is another one of those seven. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we see here he's full of power, he has the Spirit upon him, uh, acting through him in amazing ways. Uh, signs and wonders, healings, it says there, many who were lame or paralysed were healed, Um, exorcisms, you know, unclean spirits were driven out of people, whether it's physical or spiritual. This great healing came upon the people of Samaria through the ministry of Philip, obeying and listening and being empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says when they heard the message, when they saw the signs, there was great joy, in verse 8, in that city. Great joy. Verse 12. It says that when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, they were baptised, men and women. That was the practice of the early church. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came, people believed and they were baptised in water, in that order. That's what happens. That's what we do at Foundation Church. And so we can summarise this by saying there's a great revival, a great movement of the Spirit of God in this area of Samaria. And... That is amazing as it stands. That's wonderful and and great, and we, we desire this ourselves. But it's all the more amazing when you consider the history, the background, if you like, between Samaria and Judah, Israel. Between the Samaritans, if you like, and the Jews. And the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along, to put it lightly. They did not associate one another. In fact, up until this moment, In Acts chapter 8, there was the best part of 1,000 years of animosity, of of, of hatred between these two groups. 1,000 years. It all began um, many, many years ago when the 12 tribes of Israel, as they initially were, fractured. Ten tribes went north and they were known as Israel or, or Samaria, if you like, and two tribes remained faithful uh, to David, King David, and his offspring. And they went south, and they were known as Judah. And so from very early on in the history of Israel, north and south divided. They had separate kings. They had separate capital cities. They had separate systems. In 722 BC, so a few centuries after the initial separation, that north, the northern area, Samaria, was conquered by the Assyrian nation. And so many people from from the north, Uh, were deported uh, off to the heartlands of Assyria and many Assyrians were brought back in to repopulate the area known as Samaria. And they absorbed, these people that came in, these outsiders that came in, absorbed some of the old Jewish customs. They added their own teachings, their own spirituality, their own paganism. And so from the Jew, the Jewish person who lived in the south... The people in the north were were heretical, they were half-breeds, they were objects of disdain. They hated one another, and the feeling was mutual. Let me just give you a rough idea of the kind of uh, things going through the minds of Jesus' disciples um, at the time when it came to Samaria. There's this class bit in Luke chapter 9, verse 53, Jesus was out preaching, he went to a village in Samaria, and it says in verse 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Listen to this. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John, the apostles, said, do you want us to request this stuff to come down like, you know, the burning sulfur or something like that, to consume them, to kill them all, because they rejected you? They were, you can just see they were natural enemies hated one another, they kept apart. By the way, that's, that's why the parable of the good Samaritan was so controversial, because of this underlying hatred. The, the one who was the true neighbour wasn't the Levite or the priest, the good Jewish people, it was the Samaritan who was the good neighbour to the man on the road to Jericho. But can you see the difference now? Can you see the difference between these two people groups, and yet in Acts chapter 8, our passage today, can you see what the gospel does to these underlying hostilities? Because the gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission is radically inclusive. Without the gospel, if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus, if it wasn't for his ministry and the Holy Spirit... North and South, Samaria and Jerusalem would have remained enemies. They would have remained separate. There would have been no contact whatsoever. But yet there is something about the gospel of Jesus and what he did that turns all that stuff on its head. Deep, deep divisions, generation upon generation can be dissolved and overcome by the power of the gospel. There is something about the gospel that gets to the heart of division. But remember, remember, How Jesus gave marching orders right back at the beginning of our study through the book of Acts. He says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, You will receive, to his disciples, you will receive power (coughs) when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus specifically identifies Samaria as an area where you need to go to take the gospel And you need to demonstrate that gospel unity. It seems like in the early church, the gospel advance began at home. It began in Jerusalem. It stretches further out. It started with close family, one another. But then once the gospel got a a grounding or a foothold, if you like, in Jerusalem, it went further out. It went from close family to distant cousins, to the people of Samaria. They're kind of like us in some ways, but they're not us. We have some sort of shared history but it's very different and you can see that without the gospel without the good news of Jesus without the word of God without the spirit of God without persecution the gospel would never have gone to Samaria there would never have been a a, a hand of fellowship extended to the people of Samaria because they hated each other instead Jesus had other plans You can see, can't you, how God calls people to places and situations and contexts that they may never have dreamed of if it wasn't for the gospel. Let's just look at Philip for a moment because sometimes we we forget him in looking at the response of the Samaritans. Philip was just one person. And I love the boldness. I love the audacity that he has. Philip is one guy just taking a risk. He's taking a flyer. Philip is one guy who was sort of flung out to Samaria because of persecution. And he asked himself, well, why not? Now I'm here. What's to stop me? I've got power from God. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got the gospel of Jesus. The world is my canvas. He he wasn't asking himself, why should I talk about Jesus? He's asking himself, why should I not talk about Jesus? And folks, this is the kind of faith that I, I, I pray for, for myself and, and for us as a church. I, I, I desire for us as a church to have that kind of faith that Philip had, where we just say to ourselves, why not? Where we are the kind of church that develops a, a, an innovative approach when it comes to the gospel. We're not coming up with new truths, but new ways to deliver old truths. That's what we wanna be about. We wanna be a church that is free to have a go, to give it a try. Why not? What's stopping us? All for the glory of Christ. I want to be the kind of church like Philip that that just says, What have we got to lose? Very little when you give it some thought. But what have we got to gain? Very much. Very much. Look at what Philip experienced here. Maybe, Maybe we see something like that in our day. We might have to try pushing a few doors open, but eventually one door will pop open, just like it did for Philip, and then suddenly. There could be a great movement of the spirit of god i've said it to <coughs> one of one or two of you you have to be a certain age to understand what i'm talking about just now but there's an old game on uh, microsoft word microsoft 94 oh, was it uh, microsoft windows 95 called minesweeper maybe you can get it on some of the newer ones as well i don't know but minesweeper is like a black square grid thing and the idea is you don't know what's behind the gray tiles and you click on a gray tile and it tells you how many mines are around. If you hit a mine, you, you know, that's the game over. You start again. But if you, if, you, um, if you hit a space or an area where there's nothing behind it at all, it'll open up a whole bunch of other um, tiles behind the game, right? And so my technique when I was playing Minesweeper uh, was rather just carefully go through and take five hours to finish the game. I would just keep tapping, tapping, tapping. And eventually, you could tap on the right square just by random. And then suddenly, the whole game would open up. Suddenly, there would be this massive space in the game and then it'd be easy to win just like that. And so in some ways what I'm saying is we have to keep tapping away, we have to keep trying, we have to keep pushing doors until one day one will fly open and it will, it will fly open. We just have to be the kind of people like Philip that say, why not, why not? And so anyway, let's get back. This history between these two peoples, the Samaritans on the one hand and the Jews on the other hand, explains then what we see in verse 14 and following. <coughs> this sort of twofold initiation into the church. Um, it tells us in verse 14 that the apostles were dispatched from Jerusalem when they heard that Samaria had received the gospel. Great stories are coming back to head office. And so Peter and John, no less, were sent to Samaria, and they were sent <clears throat> to pray for them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Let's just stop there for a moment. This is awesome. Who was sent down from Jerusalem to Samaria? Peter and John. Who was it back in Luke chapter 9 who wanted to call down fire upon those dirty Samaritans because they rejected Jesus? It was John and his brother James. The same guy. I love that. You can see, can't you, how, how the gospel has changed that man's heart. He wanted to destroy them. Now he wants to build them up. He wanted fire to come and kill them. Now he wants fire to come and fill them. Fire them, fuel them for more. And so that's exactly what happened. It says in verse 15 and 16, uh, they came so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet fallen on them. They'd only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, they'd only been baptised in water, which is great, great start. But somehow or other, for some reason or other, the Holy Spirit had been withheld. And what happened? In verse 17, the apostles laid their hands on them, that is the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. No further description has been given about what happened, but there must have been some visible signs or manifestations, because in the next verse we see Simon, we'll think about him in a minute, um, saw what happened and he asked, can I have a piece of this myself? When he saw that the Holy Spirit had been given through the laying on of the hands. So something must have happened. We don't know. Was it tongues? Was it prophecies? Was it a spontaneous outburst of praise and thanks and sort of uh, ecstatic worship? We don't know. But something happened when the Holy Spirit came, especially on the people of Samaria. So the question uh, you may have in your mind, and I certainly do when I read this, is this. Why, why is this? Why does this happen? Why was the Holy Spirit withheld like this? Was, was Philip not up to the job? Was he preaching some sort of half-baked gospel? Well, we can say no, absolutely not, because he was preaching the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This man was a man filled with the spirit and wisdom, so nothing to do with Philip's preaching. Was there anything special about Peter and John being apostles? They were filled with the Holy Spirit too, but again, they were just regular men, nothing unique there. This is the only time in the book of Acts where this happens, where the Holy Spirit is withheld from a group of people before the uh, apostles come and lay their hands on them. A group of Christians um, receive the Holy Spirit. And so what is Luke saying who wrote the book of Acts? What is he saying? He's not saying this, number one. He's not saying that believers have to somehow wait for the Holy Spirit as if you get saved, come to faith in Jesus, and then sometime in the future, goodness knows when, you might receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what's being said here, because this is a unique story. It's never repeated again. Therefore, it's not a pattern for us to discern. So the question is, then, why is it here? Why does it happen now? Why does it happen in Samaria? Remember, 1,000 years of hatred is a long time. That's a lot of hate. And that was about to be dissolved by the gospel. It was about to be overturned. But imagine for a second, imagine with me, if you were one of the original Christians from Jerusalem, one of the original Jewish believers, and you heard with your friends in your church, you heard that that bunch of Samaritans, now now they're saying they understand. Now they're pretending to be one of us. What would your response be? Thousands of years, hundreds of years, sorry, of of, of, hatred, hatred. You've received Jesus and then you're hearing they have as well. What would be your response? Perhaps it would be disbelief. Surely not. Not them. Not those filthy half-breeds. Not those dogs. No way. Maybe your response would be disgust. What? The Samaritans receiving Christ? Ugh. Maybe that's what you would think or feel. But listen. God in his goodness in order to demonstrate beyond doubt that these Samaritans had truly embraced Jesus as Saviour, now beyond doubt they are one of us, God in his goodness, remarkably delayed the sending of the Holy Spirit so that through the Jerusalem church, through the apostles, all people will know that Samaria had been one for Jesus. Samaria had come into the church and through this public physical act of laying on of hands Jerusalem and the Jews were effectively saying you are now one of us brotherhood fellowship connection was communicated when the hands were laid on and God and his goodness poured out his Holy Spirit at that moment acceptance we are now brothers we're no longer distant cousins we are one in Jesus Christ Because the spirit-filled, gospel-centred, community on mission is radically inclusive. It is radically inclusive. I wonder, does this give you hope when you see the power of the gospel at work in people groups who have been separated by decades, centuries of hatred and conflict? Does that give you hope for where we are today? In our part of the world, in this province, does that give you hope? Do you believe that God is able to unite people who, at one point for many centuries, have been divided? Do you believe that? Is the gospel really that powerful? Do you you hunger to see the coming together of distant cousins again? Same gospel same lord same spirit so let me ask you who do you think in our experience as christians in northern ireland who in our experience is like the samaritans in this story to whom has there been years of hatred and tension and animosity and troubles with whom do we share spiritual and theological roots and yet radically different cultures and politics? Is it not our Roman Catholic friends? In 1998, you'll know, many of you, the Good Friday Agreement was signed, which brought with it many benefits, leading to a settling of hostilities for the most parts. And yet we would be foolish to think that therefore everything is now perfect. Because as you well know, tensions still exist irrespective of what the paperwork says. Generation upon generation grows up in one tradition or another taught to hate. Especially at certain times of the year, we are reminded painfully of that very fact here in Northern Ireland. Still, we live in a very divided, province and let's face it even brexit is forcing to the surface once again many of those tensions using brexit terminology to communicate what has been there for many years but and this is an important but we have so much in common with our roman catholic friends and let's face it with the roman catholic faith More than you realise. That's why we say at Foundation Church we are Christian in faith. There's much we disagree with. But that's why we do things like recite the Apostles' Creed. Because that is something as Christians have been doing for many, many centuries. And the Roman Catholic tradition still, uh, uh, of course, recites the Apostles' Creed. As do we. We're united on these most important things. It just seems to be when you look around the world more broadly now, those most close to us are often the ones that stir up the most hatred when it comes to conflict. Just think of the English and the Scots. I lived in Scotland for seven years and and I've seen it. In fact, the English and pretty much everybody else. Uh, Everybody hates the English, especially when it comes to sport and uh, most other things. But Rangers and Celtic, Protestant and Catholic, the Hutus and the Tutsis, the Sunni and the Shia, I'm not saying that these are all the same types of things, but those who are most close to us seem to stoke the most hatred within us. But as we have seen, and as we hopefully will see more and more as we go on at Foundation Church, the gospel demands demands that these traditional cultural barriers are brought under the authority of Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Lord doesn't mean to say that we stop having a certain political understanding or we stop belonging to a certain country, but it just means that under the gospel and through Jesus Christ, those things become secondary. They're less relevant. Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know about you, my experience talking to people from a Roman Catholic background at work um, shows to me there is great hope and uh, great hunger. It is my Roman Catholic colleagues and friends that have the most openness to talking about the gospel. It is my Roman Catholic friends and colleagues that are most likely to come to our events, like Watoto. I've invited loads of people to carol services and things, and it's the Catholic friends, the ones that come. I don't know if that's just my experience or if you found that too at work, but they are open to invites perhaps in some ways more than other types of people. That's my experience anyway. Let's just say this and we'll move on to the next point. There are vast patches of our city, vast areas of our province, vast areas in the island of Ireland that are predominantly uh, Roman Catholic in background and culture, but are untouched by gospel churches preaching the good news of Jesus, and I'm not okay with that. And I don't think Acts chapter 8 allows us to be okay with that. As a church, we are not okay with the fact there is not gospel witness in an area of West Europe where they should be. And that is why we plant churches. That's why we want to replant churches or help smaller churches. That's why we want to do our bit to answer the call to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Belfast, and the ends of the earth. Just imagine a church that is radically different to every other institution in our society. Beautiful, glorious, radical, Inclusive because that's what we should be. So radically inclusive. Secondly, and there's only two points in this sermon, the gospel-centered, spirit-empowered, community on mission is necessarily exclusive. Necessarily exclusive. Because the gospel makes direct and specific claims. It is definite about who is in and who is out. Where do we get that from? Well, here in the case of Simon, this man called Simon, who's a magician, And he must have been quite a man because it says in verses 9 through 11, this guy who was sort of like a roaming uh, magician, he practised magic in the city of Samaria. He amazed the people. He had power from somewhere. We don't know where. Everybody in the city said that Simon had the power of God that is called great. They thought that he was some sort of divine magician because of the stuff he was able to pull off and do. And he was wowing the crowds. And he drew a great following. That was all before Philip turned up with the gospel. But before then, Simon was in charge. He was the guy who was wowing this city. But it says there, uh, in verse 12, that Simon, sorry, 13, saw what happened, he heard the gospel, and he believed. And he was also baptized. Simon went from being the guy who amazed other people to himself being amazed at the superior power of God and the gospel through the good news. So far, so good. But then for Simon, it all gets a bit wonky coming into verses 18 and 19. Something uh, smells wrong. Something is not right about this guy because it says he sees the apostles uh, laying their hands on uh, the people of Samaria. He sees what happens when the Holy Spirit comes in power. And his question, his response to that is not humility or put your hands on me. His question is how much? How much do I have to pay to get that thing that you can do to those people? Because it's awesome. And I, I, I want that, how much? And so Peter's response to them in, in verses 20 to 23, paraphrasing, is this. What, are you kidding me? After all you have seen and heard and believed, you think you can buy this? You think, you think money is good to, to receive the gift and, and impart the gift of the Holy Spirit? No way. You have no part or no lot in this. You have no share in what we're doing, says Peter. Your heart is not right. You must repent of your wickedness. (coughs) You're full of the, I love this, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That means you're full of bitterness. You're captive to sin. (coughs) This is a guy who started out so well. He received, he believed, he was baptized and yet, he gets absolutely stuck in the mud. What is happening here? How can someone, do you think, go from being so convinced about Jesus to going so far wrong? Was he making it up at the start? Do you think he was putting on a front? Most um, commentators, both ancient and modern, believe that Simon, when he received the truth and put his faith uh, you know, and belief in Jesus, uh, he did so sincerely and yet he was deeply mistaken. Somehow or other for Simon, there was a disconnection between what he heard and what he sort of took into his mind and what was going on in his heart. So we don't know, and neither can we say or judge from this text whether Simon was saved or not. We can't make a judgment, neither should we do that today when we look at people today and say this person or that person is definitely saved, definitely not saved. We can't do that. (coughs) None of us can see into someone's heart. All we can do, just like we do here, is look at the fruit. Look at the character. Look at the behaviour of someone who says they're a Christian. And then we can make a sort of an informed, you know, guess, I guess. Guess, I guess. But there's a great problem, isn't there, uh, in Simon's response. He thought he could purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit. He probably, that's probably how it was in the industry, you know, in the, in the magic industry. Maybe, maybe there was a sort of uh, a commerce between buying and sharing one another's magic um, spells or some sort of, uh, I don't know what they did, but... Maybe he was just applying the, the, the tools of the trade. He wanted to get this magic power also. He wanted to receive the spirit also to be another thing that he could add to his sort of repertoire. But whatever it is, Simon betrays a lack of understanding that what he is talking about is a gift. It is a gift. Peter says, Can't see it. Verse 20. <clears throat> May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You don't obtain a gift with money. You're given a gift. It's free. A gift is something that no one pays for, by definition. A gift is the sign of the grace or the love or the heart of the person giving it. A gift is something that you receive with thanks. You use it. You put it to good use. (coughs) It's not something you pay for or try and earn or push back. It seems to be that Simon, in all of this, just got so completely caught up in it that he misunderstood the whole thing. He misunderstood the love of God. He misunderstood the gift of the Spirit. He misunderstood the Gospel of Jesus, that he was crucified, risen, ascended, and he's the one who's pouring out this Holy Spirit upon you as you see. Simon had major blind spots in his Christian understanding. It's as if Peter was saying, do you have any idea how much this costs, Simon? Do you have any idea what it costs God to give you this gift? And here you come with a bag of silver. You think you can buy this? You have no idea how much this costs. See folks, this this is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is all of grace. Faith in Jesus is a gift. Forgiveness of sins is a gift. New life in Jesus is a gift. The indwelling Holy Spirit is a gift. Eternal security before God is a gift. It's all a gift. You can't earn it. And if you think you can earn it or you should earn it or you've got to pay it back by good works, you haven't understood the grace of God in giving you the gift of himself. It's a serious question whether you think you've grasped it or not if you think you should be paying it back. If you get grace wrong, you can forget the rest. Seems to be that Simon wanted the Holy Spirit so he could increase his power, increase his fame, increase his support. Just add the Holy Spirit to his show to attract bigger crowds. This is very troubling for us today. It should be, if we understand it properly. Because it is possible to profess faith in Jesus and be baptised and be a good Christian boy or girl but still radically misunderstand the gospel so much so that you are still a foreigner in the kingdom of God let me say that again it is troubling because it is possible to profess faith and be baptised and yet still misunderstand the gospel to the extent when you are an outsider and not an insider by the gospel don't forget the Samaritans who were outsiders were brought in by the same gospel, the S- Simon, who thought he was an insider, was shown to be outside. And we, say, we see similar things today in today's church, <clears throat> similar reasons why someone might adopt a Christian badge or have a Christian label upon themselves, but aren't truly believers in Jesus to the extent where it makes a difference. Like Simon, some people today might want to have Christian name or symbolism around them <clears throat> because it gives them some form of power in the eyes of other people. Nowhere is that more clear than people who do my job, being a pastor, standing in front of people, giving words of authority. Some people just want to be Christians so they can have power and notoriety in the eyes of others. Some people want to be Christian or are Christian because that's just the family they've come from. Maybe they've been brought up, it's been pressured upon them, and so they accepted Christianity because it was the done thing, and, and you know, maybe they heard a thing or two about hell and they thought, oh, I don't want to go there, I'll just... You know, I'll tell everybody I'm a Christian that's that. By the way, hell is important to teach your kids about. But it's not the only thing, okay? Family. Maybe family pressure made you receive Christianity, uh, but never truly in your heart. Cultural reasons. You know, going to a, a, an evangel- evangelistic event, maybe. Uh, making a decision for Christ, you know, coming to a crisis point, putting your hand up, going forward, that kind of thing. You know, following other people. Sometimes that works and sometimes that is true conversion for people. A lot of the times it's not. You're just going with the flow. And maybe you've taken on a, a cultural Christianity in that sense. It could be political reasons, it could be social reasons, it could be all these other reasons why someone might take the name of Christian, Christian and not be truly converted. But you can see why, can't you? It's a danger to the church to have people who think that they're Christian and are not truly Christian. Not only are they threatening their own souls, but they're threatening the church. Threatening the church because we should be representing Jesus. When you join the church, when you become a member, we're saying you are a bona fide, paid up, passport carrying member of the kingdom of God. And people who are confused about the gospel Are representing Jesus falsely. That's why we are a gospel centered church. That's why we are clear on the gospel. That's why we are clear on the claims of Jesus. That's why I try every week to be clear on how you receive Jesus. (coughs) Whether you've heard it a million times, I don't care. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says to the church, church, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He's saying to the church, examine yourselves. What's in your heart? Are you really in the faith? Do you really love Jesus? Are you really saved? Have you really repented? Examine yourselves. And I will never tire. This church will never stop proclaiming the gospel. Martin Lloyd Jones, famous preacher <coughs> from the 20th century, um, in, in in many books actually always uh, wrote wrote that he never ceased to be uh, be surprised when he would you know, week on week proclaim the gospel. To a a group of people that he presumed would be christian and the steady trickle over the years of ministry in the center of london steady trickle of people who came to him and said i thought i was a christian before but now when i've heard the gospel i realize that was just just a joke so we're a gospel-centered church never going to stop being a gospel-centered church that's why we're gospel-centered church that's why we have church membership do you understand the gospel Is there evidence of that in your life? Is that seen and affirmed by others in the community of faith? Then come and be a member of Foundation Church. That's why we do church membership. That's why we have elders who are to lead and guide us uh, through the the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and discernment. That's why we have a statement of faith to be clear on what we believe, so we can share that and affirm that together. That's why we're committed to holding one another accountable as church members. The gospel-centred, spirit-empowered community on mission is necessarily exclusive. It draws clear lines on who's outside and who's inside. Is this the end of the road for Simon and others who have grossly misunderstood the gospel to the extent when they realise they're not truly saved? The answer is no, of course not. There's always hope when it comes to Jesus because Peter says to him, repent, pray for forgiveness, that God will hear you, will see you. Turn to Christ. There's always hope. So let's draw things to a conclusion. The gospel-centered, spirit Power community on mission is radically inclusive because of the gospel, but it is necessarily exclusive because of the gospel. And here at church, here at Foundation Church, we need to be both. We can't only be inclusive or focus on inclusivity because then we'll end up like a social club <clears throat> with blurred lines and all over the map when it comes to what we believe and is belief even important? We're meant to represent the world to Jesus. <clears throat> so we can't just be exclusive, inclusive. but we can't major on exclusive as well. Drawing such clear lines and boundaries, we end up being sectarian, we end up becoming cultish, inward-looking, we end up being mean-spirited to other people from other church denominations and traditions who don't agree with the finer points of theology that we may hold. So it's not either or, folks, it is both. It is radically inclusive and necessarily exclusive. And that is the implication of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, that the church is one in Jesus Christ. In a few moments, folks, we're going to come to the bread and the wine. And uh, right there in in the bread, it's one loaf, right? And we tear a bit off. And this is the reason we tear a bit off. I want to read just a few verses here from from, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, when it comes to the bread and the wine, just to set the scene um, as we close our time of worship together.